Welcome to Calvary. We're glad that you're here. This morning, I want to share with you a picture that uh, some researchers at MIT have somewhat recently come up with, and it's designed uh, to help you figure out if you need glasses or not. (laughs) So now, before I show you the picture, what I'd like you to do is if you're here wearing glasses, and I, I think this only works for those who are nearsighted, meaning you can't see things uh, far away without glasses. If you have glasses on, I'd like you to take them off uh, at, this, at this time. If you don't have uh, glasses, if you have contacts or uh, you just, you're one of those people who sees fine, uh, just leave them, uh, leave it alone. And, and I'm going to show you a picture, and I don't want you to say anything about what you see just yet. I'm going to ask you a question about the picture. And uh, I have contacts in, but I practiced this at different places in the sanctuary with my glasses on Thursday. And I think it works. Uh, but again, if you've got glasses and you're nearsighted, you have trouble seeing things far away, just take them off. And I know you're like, how am I going to see with my glasses off? So yes, it might be blurry, but go ahead and put the picture up. Okay, now I'd like to ask, without talking to anybody around you, please raise your hand. If you see, now it might be blurry, but if you see a Marilyn Monroe, or a female, if you don't know who Marilyn Monroe is. If you see the image of a female, just raise your hand. Okay? If you see a man, or Albert Einstein is who it is. If you see the image of Albert Einstein in that picture, raise your hand. Okay? Now, I'd like for those of you who took off your glasses to put your glasses back on. And I'd like for those of you who have contacts or have good vision to squint at the picture as you look at it. Now let me ask, how many of you see a picture of Marilyn Monroe? Okay, and how many of you see a picture of Albert Einstein? All right. Now go ahead and just look normally. (laughs) What's going on here is there is something, uh, it's all the same picture, you've seen that. There's something scientific about what they've done is uh, the the researchers have realized that at great distances or when your vision is not clear, your brain doesn't pick up fine details and so in the blurriness uh, you see one image uh, and when you're actually able to see the image up close or in great detail or on a big screen, you see some other things. Now to show you how this works, we've actually got just a little video where we take this picture as a thumbnail and start it far away and bring it closer. So just watch, uh, run the video, and you'll kind of see how the science of it works from far away. Isn't that cool? Yeah, let's hear it for engineers, huh? We finally do something right, yeah. I thought that was pretty great. Now, they've named this picture Marilyn Einstein. And that's an important point because it's not just a picture of Marilyn Monroe or a picture of Albert Einstein. It's actually a picture of both. 
And the point is, is that when you look at the picture one way, you see one thing, and when you look at it another way, you see something else. Both are there, but in some ways, looking at the picture from a distance or without good vision, you can only make out sort of the blurriness of it, but there is a picture there. Yet up close or with glasses, you can see more detail, and that brings out another picture but not a different one. It's all still the same picture, which is why it's Marilyn Einstein and not Marilyn Monroe or Albert Einstein. Now, I go over this with you because I believe this is a really great metaphor for what's going on in the Gospel of Mark. So what I'd like you to do, I'd invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark If you need a Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you. It will look like this, one of the church Bibles. And if you turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, it's page 812. Mark chapter 1. For the past couple of months, really through the summer, we've been doing part of a series that's about stories of redemption, stories of rescue, of restoration. And we started in the book of Ruth, and then we looked at the book of Esther, and now we're in the book of Mark. And really, those books all go together, Ruth, Esther, and Mark. And what we said when we were looking through the Old Testament books of Ruth and Esther is they were really supposed to be preparing us for the picture of Jesus that we're going to see. They were preludes to the main story. This is the main story. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel, and we're going to spend the next year in Mark's gospel. And we believe that Mark's gospel historically is the first one written down. So Matthew's first in the New Testament. But Mark historically, we think, was the first one that was actually written down. And it's interesting how Mark's gospel begins. It's a pretty straightforward chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Essentially, Mark's gospel is a picture, if you will, of Jesus. It's a picture with words, but Mark's purpose is to show us Jesus. And he wants to show us that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. That's the same word. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Jesus is the Messiah, meaning he is the Savior of the world, and that he is the Son of God. That's Mark's purpose. It's pretty straightforward. He wants to show us Jesus, and this gospel is a picture of Jesus. Now, interestingly, the reason we started with the picture of Marilyn Einstein is there's something to grasp from that example to help us understand what's going on in Mark's gospel because the picture that Mark gives us of Jesus has some depth to it which allows us when we look at the picture to sometimes see different things. So interesting is this, the scientists gave us the explanation of why their picture worked the way it works. Mark also gives us an explanation of what's going on in his gospel. In other words, 
he teaches us or tells us how it is that we're supposed to read his gospel so that we get from the picture of Jesus that's there all that there is to get. Because at one level, when you read Mark's gospel, you're going to see one thing. At another level, you're going to see something else. And so Mark gives us some instructions to tell us how to read his gospel in such a way that we see everything that we're supposed to see there. Those instructions are in chapter 8. So turn over to Mark chapter 8. Now, Mark has 16 chapters, so we're about halfway through and we're in Mark chapter 8. This is not the most important chapter in the book in the sense of it's not the climactic event, but it is the most important chapter for understanding how to read the book. So this week, as we are getting started on the Gospel of Mark, we're going to spend some time in Mark chapter 8 hearing from the author how it is we're supposed to read this book so that we see everything here that we're supposed to see. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 22 with a miracle story. Mark 8, verse 22. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, uh, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, does anybody think that miracle is strange? Yeah, what's strange about it? Yeah, it takes two attempts. <laughs> it's like it takes two passes to get this guy healed. It's almost like you've got a blind man, and he's going to be healed. And so Jesus says, he spits on his eyes, and he says, essentially, be healed. And then he shows him that MIT picture and says, what do you see? And the blind man says, well, I see Marilyn Monroe. That's what the phrase, I see people, but they look like trees. It's blurry. I see something, but it's blurry. So Jesus is like, okay. So he puts his hands back on him. And he says, be healed. And he says, now what do you see? Oh, now I see Albert Einstein. And we think, well, that's kind of weird. Like, why can't, he, why can't he heal him in one fell swoop? I mean, after all, Jesus is human, but he's not just human. He's also God himself incarnate. The very God who created the whole universe. The very God who created the eyeball. The very God who invented sight and light and all these things. And we've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. And we've seen Jesus take those who are blind and give them sight immediately. And so the point is not that he's some sort of simply human miracle worker whose miraculous powers weren't sort of in full power that day. This is God himself. He just says the word and it happens. So why does it take him two passes to get this guy's sight restored? Well, it's because Jesus wants to teach a point about spiritual blindness 
and he's using physical blindness for the illustration. You see, physical blindness can be miraculously healed in one fell swoop. We see lots of examples of that in the Bible. Spiritual blindness is almost never healed in one fell swoop, either in the Bible or today. Now, this story, this miracle story, the reason it gets our attention in Mark's gospel is because, number one, Mark's the only one that has this story. Matthew, Luke, and John don't record this story. And Mark puts it right before what essentially all commentators and all sort of careful readers of the book of Mark think is the turning point in the gospel. So keep going with me in Mark chapter 8. Remember, we're trying to hear from Mark how it is we're supposed to read his gospel. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now remember, the purpose of Mark's gospel was that we would see Jesus. It's the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark's gospel's purpose is that we would see Jesus as the Messiah, see him as the Savior of the world. And so here Jesus is asking a question about spiritual blindness. He asks the disciples, how do people see me? When they look at me, what is the image that they see? What is the person that they see? Well, some people see John the Baptist, some people see Elijah, meaning they're not seeing very clearly. Peter says, but you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That was the purpose. That was the goal. That's why Mark is written. But the odd thing is, we're only halfway through the book. Like it should be, well, if that was the goal, Peter's figured it out, he's the Messiah, just should simply say at the end of verse 30, the end. Like we did it. Good job. He's figured out this is the Messiah. And he's done so because God has opened his eyes to be able to see. Other people are completely blind when it comes to Jesus. But Peter has had his eyes open and he sees him not as John the Baptist, not as Elijah, but as the savior of the world. But the other weird thing going on here is Jesus says, don't tell anybody. What? I thought we were supposed to tell people. I mean, Mark's gospel is written is so that everyone will know that Jesus is the Messiah. Here, Peter identifies that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Now, that's weird to me. But not only is it here, when you go through the gospel of Mark or when we work through it together as a church, you're going to find that there are multiple times that Jesus says to people, don't say anything. In fact, I want to show all of those occurrences to you. So go back to the beginning in Mark chapter 1. Verse 
And I want you to see that it's not just in Mark 8, but multiple times Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody. Verse 34, Mark chapter 1. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now you may think, well, maybe Jesus doesn't want demons talking about him. But they're giving true testimony, but he won't let them speak. Okay, keep going. Chapter 1, verses 40, 42. Verse 42. Immediately the leprosy left him. So this is not a demon. This is a human who has leprosy. And he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Again, this is a great miracle. The man's been cured of leprosy. We think he should go around and tell everybody. But Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And by the way, this is not reverse psychology. This is not Jesus trying to motivate him to tell someone. This is Jesus instructing him not to tell. God doesn't use reverse psychology. Jesus is telling him, don't tell anybody. Okay, chapter 3. Verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, that's Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. True, right? That's, what, that's exactly who he is, and that's who Mark says we're supposed to see him as. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Again, do not speak about me. Mark chapter 5. Verse 41. Jesus took her. This is a little girl that's died. She's 12 years old. Took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. Yeah, I would be too. This girl was dead and he's raised her from the dead. But then look at verse 43. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Same thing. Don't tell anyone. Chapter 7. Verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. This is someone who is unable to hear or speak. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Another miracle story, another beautiful miracle of someone who can't hear or speak being healed, and then Jesus turns around and says, don't tell anybody, and then turn over to chapter 8, and we're back uh, to where we were. This time, we don't have a healing story, but we have Peter whose spiritual eyes have been opened, so it is a healing story. His spiritual eyes have been opened to be able to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but yet Jesus says, don't tell anyone about him. Now, question. 
What do you notice about where in the book of Mark all those references I just took us through are located? The first half, right? Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8. They're all in the first half of the book. Then Peter makes the declaration. So Peter's been there for the whole first half. He's seen demons cast out. He's seen the deaf be able to hear. He's seen a little girl raised from the dead. He's seen 5,000 fed and 4,000 fed. He's seen amazing miracles. And God has used those miracles to open his eyes to allow him to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But now keep going, verse 31. After Peter makes this epic declaration, you're the Savior of the world. Look what verse 31 says. And this is why scholars recognize this point as the turning point in Mark's gospel. He then, what's the next word? Began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to do what? Rebuke him. In other words, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, I don't want to embarrass you publicly, but buddy, stop saying those things. You don't know what you're talking about. Whew. <laughs> when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely her human concerns. Wait a second. Literally what? A minute earlier, two minutes earlier, right, right. Peter just declared, you are the Messiah. But now we see there's some problem in what Peter thinks that means that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And it's like we've gotten to the first stage. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and Jesus says, it's now time to move to a second stage whereby he can begin to teach stuff that wasn't obvious in the first eight chapters. See, the book of Mark is really set up in two halves. When Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, that's the end of the first half. And it really functions like the first time Jesus heals the blind man. It's not because he doesn't have the ability. He's using his physical blindness to show what's going on spiritually. And the first half of the book of Mark is Jesus opening people's eyes to see that he is the Savior of the world. But there's more to the story, which is why in the first half, when people have only seen the healings and the miracles and the casting out of the demons, Jesus says, it's not time to go public with this yet because there's more to the story. And we see that because after Peter says, you are the Messiah, he then turns around and rebukes Jesus when Jesus begins to teach that he is a suffering Messiah. 
Clearly, Peter doesn't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. That's why there's actually one more time that Jesus tells his disciples not to say something, but it sounds a little different. Look over in chapter 9. Peter, James, and John are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which means they've just seen Jesus transformed in their eyesight into his eternal glory. As they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. But this, look how it's different. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead might mean. See, the idea is is that in the second half of Mark's gospel, you have a second healing that's taking place spiritually, whereby at the end of Mark's gospel, by the time Peter's ready to write 1 Peter, he's come to understand that not only is Jesus the Savior of the world, he is the suffering Savior of the world. He's come to understand that there is more to the story than just that Jesus is here to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to feed people, that there is a deeper level at which you can see what's going on here. It's like the Marilyn Einstein picture. The first half of Mark's gospel when you read it you can see blurry a picture of something beautiful But only when you put the glasses on, only when you look at it more closely, do you realize there are details in the picture that give a fuller explanation of what's going on. 2,000 years before those MIT researchers came up with that, Mark is doing that in his gospel. And he set his gospel up in this way so that the first half of the gospel is designed to do the first stage of spiritual blindness healing that we need, which is designed to help us to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The second half of Mark's gospel is designed to cause the second stage of the spiritual blindness healing miracle to occur, which is to see that he is the suffering Savior of the world which is why the benediction that we say every week, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, is in the second half of the book. Because now after chapter 8, Jesus is beginning to teach that he's got to suffer. He's got to die. He's got to go through all of this rejection and then be raised from the dead. And then amazingly, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, very God of very God, light of light, Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, did not come to be served. The ruler of the universe, the creator of all things, didn't come to his creation in order to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many, that this Jesus is willing to allow one of his disciples to take him aside and rebuke him? That anybody should ever do that to the creator of all things, the savior of the whole world? But he was willing to go through that. And more than that, to be rejected, this one who used his spit to give sight to the blind will be spit upon, will be rejected, will be crucified, will be mocked, will be scorned. The second half of Mark's gospel is designed to open our eyes, to help us to see that he is the suffering Savior of the world. That's how Mark wants us to read his gospel. He wants us to realize it works at two levels. So what does that mean for us today? Well, hopefully this is not just an interesting illustration like that MIT example where you go, ooh, that's kind of cool. What's the purpose? Two purposes. One, if you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if you don't know that he's the savior of the world, Mark's gospel is designed to share with you unbelievably great news. That this world that is so full of natural disasters, that is full of racism and hatred and war and threat of nuclear war and anger and bitterness and abuse and all sorts of sin, that this world that is full of death and cancer and sickness of broken relationships, that this world that is messed up in every possible way, that this world has a savior. That God himself did not leave us in the state that we were in, the mess that we had made, but instead has chosen in the person of Jesus to come be among us. And the good news is, is that God wants to open your eyes so that you can see there is a Savior. There is a Savior who has come to give eternal life. That death is not the end. That death can have its sting taken away. That God has come to raise the dead, to give food, to give sight to the blind, to open the ears. That there is possible now for you and I to experience salvation. And the goal of Mark's gospel, yeah. The goal of Mark's gospel first is for those whose eyes are closed. And the great news is, you don't have to do anything to open them. You just have to be willing to let God open them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This gospel that we're going to spend this year going through is designed to miraculously open your eyes. And you say, but Jesus, he was just some guy, some Jewish guy that lived 2,000 years ago. Okay, fine. Let's just read the story together. You say, well, how could what he did help me? Let's just read the story together. The promise is that through this book, God will use his word if you are willing to give sight to the blind so that you can see. See what? That Jesus is the savior of the world and that he's your savior and that he's come so that you might have life. The second purpose of this book 
is for those of us who are already Christians. And what God wants to do with this book is to miraculously heal us again so that we might see this Jesus who we do believe in and who because we believe in him we have eternal life. He wants us to be able to take another look at the picture and to see very clearly even in the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, that when Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, the religious leaders begin to persecute him, to want to kill him, and to come to understand that God has not called us to believe in a Savior who simply raises the dead and heals the blind and feeds the masses. He's called us to believe in and to follow a suffering Savior. He wants to miraculously open our eyes, and it is a miracle because nobody gets there, humanly speaking. He wants to miraculously open our eyes to help us to realize you cannot get to the resurrection power of Easter Sunday without going through the pain of Good Friday. No servant is greater than their master. If he was persecuted, we are going to be persecuted. If he was rejected, we are going to be rejected. If he suffered, we are going to suffer. But in that suffering comes salvation, comes rescue, comes power. That Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. That if the Son of Man, the God of God, the light of light, did not come to be served, Who are we to sit around and say, this whole world is here to serve me? Who are we to think that God is here to serve? It's not ultimately about us. If Jesus did not come to be served, who are we not to serve? But please, nobody sees that on their own. We're born thinking life is about us. I'm born thinking all of you are here for me. And you're not. And it takes a miracle of God to open our eyes and to see it's through the suffering and the serving and the sacrifice that Jesus is doing the miraculous things that he's doing. And that when you and I join him in that suffering and serving and sacrifice, then that same incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power will be at work in us to do miraculously great things. And so the good news is, the gospel of Mark is designed to open our eyes. So if you're not a Christian, It's designed to give you salvation. And if you are a Christian, it's designed to show you that that salvation comes through suffering and sacrifice and service. As a side note or an explanation, Mark 8 is a turning point in the gospel. Peter especially is featured in Mark. First eight chapters Peter is a Christian. He's a believer in Jesus. If he died before chapter 8, he'd go to heaven. But there's something that happens in Mark 8 where Peter begins to see more clearly and more deeply, and it's a transition point. I believe for us as a church that this journey of grace beyond that we've been on this building project is like a Mark 8 kind of turning point. 
I believe that God has been wanting to teach us. Please, I've told you this many times. I'm going to keep. It's never been about a building. It's always been about learning to obey, learning to sacrifice, learning to give, and to see the power that comes through that. This is the reason why it's been a struggle to raise the money. This is the reason why we had to move out for eight months and go to another location. This is the reason why many of you individually, I know, have been going through your own valleys of darkness during Grace Beyond that you've been in your own spiritual struggle. Trust me, there's been great blessings in this, but the onslaught of spiritual warfare in the midst of this has been overwhelming. I said this to a friend the other day when we were crying, literally crying together at lunch because of just the incredible amounts of suffering and difficulty we were being asked to endure as we take this church and go through this process together. And I said to him, you know what? It feels like we're finally pulling our weight as a church spiritually. And what I meant by that was with the onslaught of darkness and difficulty and problem, there's got to be some churches in China and in India and in South America who have it a little bit easier because we're starting to pull some of our weight. That there are not infinite numbers of forces of darkness and that if we're finally starting to attract some of that opposition, there are other brothers and sisters around the world who get to experience a little bit less because we're finally pulling our own weight. And there's something about this in the midst of this difficulty that made me feel good because it's not, it cannot be that Christians in China have to suffer, but Americans don't. It cannot be that Christians in Brazil have to suffer, but Americans don't. It cannot be that only certain churches have to serve and to sacrifice and suffer. What does that mean if we're a church where, where those things aren't happening? And the fact that God is leading us through this Mark 8 kind of transformation made me realize this is what he wants to do. He wants to change our vision as a church so we're not simply a place where people come to be served, but a place where people come to serve. A place where people come not so that others can sacrifice for them, but so that we can sacrifice for others. A place where we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And the miraculous thing is God's been doing that apart from any plan of any human being to get us to this point. And it's a miracle. In the next few weeks, we're going to try to talk a little bit about the things that we think God might be telling us that we need to do going forward after this Mark 8 journey that we've been on. Where is God taking us, and how can we use what he's teaching us and what he's giving to us and how he's blessing us to serve and bless others? But for today, here's the invitation. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus... Come with us on this journey and let God use the gospel of Mark to open your eyes to see that there is a savior of the whole world and a savior for you personally. And if you are a believer in Jesus, come with us on this journey through the gospel of Mark and let God miraculously open your eyes to see that the resurrection power of Easter Sunday only comes through the pain of Good Friday. But God is faithful, and he will carry us all the way through. If we want to proclaim a Messiah who, like a genie in a bottle, simply washes away all of our cancer and waves his hand at all of the struggles in life, and miraculously snaps his finger and all the famine and economical struggle is gone,
if we want a Messiah who just raises the dead and heals the blind, but doesn't call us to take up our cross and follow him, we don't have a clear picture of who the Messiah really is. But don't be afraid. God's the one who will change how we see. It's not up to us. It's up to him. And so the invitation is, come along and let God do what he said he would do by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm more amazed at what you've accomplished through this gospel of Mark. How in the world 2,000 years ago did you explain these things and do these things and yet have them speak to our hearts today? Jesus, surely you are present with us. Open our eyes, Lord, and let us see. Help us to see who you are. Lord, forgive us for ignoring you, for being blind to the fact that you came to give your life that we might have eternal life. Forgive us for being blind to the fact and thinking that somehow this is all about us, that we deserve to have you serve us and sacrifice for us. Lord, we want to take our place. We want to carry our weight. We want to come alongside and we want to follow after you. But Lord, if we can't see, we will just stumble and fall. And so I pray right now at the beginning of this series, Lord, that through your word, you would lead many to faith. And that, Lord, through your word, you would lead many of us into a deeper faith that we might follow you to the cross, through the resurrection, into the glory that you have waiting for us. We ask this in your name and by your power. Amen.